This is Brand and New from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property. I am Audrey Dove. Welcome to Brand and New. General counsel no longer are limited to a reactive role overseeing litigation thumbed out to law firms, but instead are key members of the corporate decision-making team. This is a major shift. General counsel are leaders, innovators, decision-makers at the highest levels, far beyond being technicians in the law. They also have to be agile in an ever-evolving environment. Let's take technology, for example. Tech has invaded legal practice over the last decade. From sophisticated legal analytics technologies in e-discovery tools or prior right search software to smart contract protocols to facilitate negotiations, or even high-end IT security features aimed at protecting files' integrity. Lawyering does not quite look like it used to be just 20 years ago. And this is part of the discussion open in this episode with Aurélien Amel, General Counsel of Total, the French multinational energy company, one of the six super major oil companies in the world. Before overseeing a team of around 500 lawyers at Total since 2016, Aurélien was a regulatory and dispute resolution lawyer with various firms, including Metzner Law Firm and Allen and Overy as a partner. He will share with us his vision on what the legal leadership of tomorrow means in terms of relevant skills, from openness to innovation to new perspectives on performance and knowledge management. Thanks for accepting our invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you. Drawing from your experience of managing legal teams at the international scale, we would be very interested in your vision of legal leadership, and in particular, over the course of your career, how has your perspective on being a good lawyer and efficiently leading a legal team evolved? From the moment I was an associate and then a partner in, in private practice in law firms to today, where I'm, I'm general counsel of a large company with a large, very large in-house team, uh, this has changed, frankly, dramatically. Um, as an associate and then a partner in law firms, no, I thought, and I think I was right in thinking so, that being a good lawyer meant you know, being extremely skilled, extremely knowledgeable in, in one's field of practice. Mm-hmm. And and when I you know, moved on and became a partner, I thought I had to pass that on to you know, the younger associates. And it was all about skills, performance, knowledge, experience. And it was and still is to a large extent, actually, of, of paramount importance for private practice attorneys. Now, when you move in-house, you do realize that it takes much more than that to be a, an accomplished lawyer uh, in all, all the senses of the word. What you have to do as a senior in-house lawyer, as a general counsel, namely, is you really have to become an enabler and, and you have to make sure that the in-house lawyers in your teams, the outside counsels in law firms, will have what they need to deliver reliable, skilled legal work for the benefit of the client. And, and that's a very different world where you have to think in advance of how best to staff a team, what tools they need, what training they need. And, and frankly, this is fascinating too. It's a great experience to mm-hmm. think about what it takes to deliver legal services, not only actually do that, not only deliver services, but think 
what makes a legal service a good legal service that has value for the client and for the company? The way in-house legal counsels are perceived by business teams has evolved from the ones who always say no to real partners. What are your tips or experiences to improve your team members' agility, their knowledge outside of their comfort zone, and ultimately their business acumen to valuably participate in the design and implementation of the company's development strategy? I think you're right, Audrey. We, we used to be known as, as those who say no. I think it's really not so much the case these days. I can't really say nobody thinks that somewhere in the corner of a company, but that's not the, uh, the common perception of lawyers. Now, how do we achieve that? A, I think that in order to be a, a good gatekeeper and actually on some occasions be able to say no or say, no, be careful, you really need to be a good business partner. And the more a lawyer is, is a good business partner, helping clients to achieve their goals, to create value, the more the clients actually will listen to the lawyers on the few occasions where the lawyers have to say, be careful, there's a danger zone. It's a fine line that you have to walk as a lawyer, make sure that when you can, be the partner you can be. And at times when you think you really need to take a step and say, be careful, do that. And, and so how do you achieve that, frankly, in, in practice? First, you have to stay very close to the clients. And, and for instance, at Total, the lawyers are disseminated close to the clients. And it's very important that they stay close to their clients to build trust because you need to stay close to build, to build trust. You can't do that from a distance. That's one thing. Then the other thing you need to do to be a good lawyer, especially in-house lawyer, is to really understand your client. As far as I'm concerned, when I joined here four years ago, this has meant understanding the world of energy. What is energy? How is it produced? What is oil? What is gas? What is renewable? And you need to understand that. You need to actually enjoy that, I think. And, and you also need to understand in a company like mine, what's climate and how energy, the energy mix and its evolution is related to climate and climate change. And how do you do to address that? So in other words, to be a good in-house lawyer, you need to stay close to the client, understand the company, understand what it is that the company does, how it affects the world. You know, positively and then maybe not so positively. And, and once you do that, you can be really a, a great value added to the company. I mentioned the role of technology uh, earlier in my introduction. In your daily practice, is the digital transformation an opportunity to do a better job or a challenge to overcome? Uh, what's your experience, your practical experience in this respect? Well, first I'll say that, you know, I don't know whether you read uh, Suskind on the law and then what's, what tomorrow's lawyers should be. Yes. Um, we all have, I guess. You know, he, he has devised this more for less challenge. I find that, you know, in, actually, at least in, in large companies, in-house lawyers, they're really faced with the more for the same challenge, meaning we have a, a given level of resources, you know, staff, lawyers we can use outside. And we need to deliver more and more on that basis. So it's really the more for the same challenge. And, and that's where digital plays a very large part because you know, we live in a world that's more complex, more volatile. We also all know that. And, and because of that, regulations, legal risks, compliance, ESG standards, they create more and more demands on lawyers. Mm -hmm. And we have to be able to find ways to address these expectations of stakeholders and clients from a legal perspective. And at the same time, you know, deliver services and try to sleep at night and spend some time with the family. 
And and mm-hmm. to achieve that digital certainly is, is a game changer. And and the way I see it is that it is a, an opportunity, but it is very difficult to transition from a standard practice of the law where you know, we get uh, queries, uh, requests for assistance from clients, we assist, we deliver, we draft, we provide opinions, we negotiate, and then we move on to something else. And and you need to take a step back. And, and the way I see it in my position, actually, um, is that in order to save time with digital tools, at first, you need to lose actually a lot of time because you need to take a step back, take time to reflect on on how is it that we deliver legal services to our clients and what is it that can be digitalized, that can be made different in the way the service is provided. And this is really change management afterwards that's important because even though you may have digital solutions that will automate some of the processes, for instance, in, in contract automation, even though you have that and it's available to your lawyers, if you don't take the hands of the lawyers, and that includes me, and, and walk with them the path of change, nothing will happen. And, and we've all seen that. So to me, it's, it certainly is a great opportunity, but it takes to lose time in the first instances, and these instances can be actually lengthy ones. And it takes a lot of efforts to make sure that lawyers, they walk the change. Mm-hmm. Even though it's tricky to anticipate the future, Artificial intelligence will be more and more prominent in the legal industry. What will performance mean for lawyers? And what are the qualities they should cultivate to become, let's say, irreplaceable? Well, I think the you know, lawyers like, are like everyone. I mean, you know, cemeteries are full of irreplaceable <laughs> people. But still, we, you know, we play a large part in a company's protection and value creation. So, so we need to be irreplaceable uh, to some extent, at least. I think, you know, performance for lawyers in the future will be very different from what it is today because it will have different dimensions. One of them, certainly in relation to AI and then what AI will mean in, in, in the near future is that lawyers will need to be able to identify which tasks that they do today can be left to others, meaning AI, um, so that AI will deal with some of the recurring tasks that we do on a day-to-day basis, drafting contracts, reading contracts, maybe interpreting contracts. And once you've identified that, um, you can know as a lawyer what you should keep doing yourself as a human being. And I, I think and hope it will be the case in the future. We are going to be superior to AI solutions in many respects. And we need to do the things that are important and sensitive and that add value to the client. Uh, if I take the example of predictive justice, which relies more and more on AI applications, what does it mean? It certainly does not mean that dealing with complex litigation cases will be done by machines in the future. It, however, means that some of the work we do today when, when we have a litigation that, that starts, we won't be doing in the future. Maybe we won't be needing to have junior associates, uh, you know, lawyers spending hours on, on digging up precedents and understanding what's direction uh, that judges take in a given case, because all of that will be probably to a large extent, at least automated through AI solutions and predictive justice. However, the, the difficult part is not there. The difficult part is that once you know what's the direction of the wind and you know that you know, in 90% of cases, the case you have at hand looks as though it's going to end in your favor or not in your favor. 
The question is, am I in the 10%? And that's the difficult part, because the machine will never know whether you're in the 90% or in the 10% part. And it takes a human eye. That's, that's not perfect. That can make mistakes. But the more we can spend time on, you know, trying to divide the 90% and the 10% and see where we stand, the more we are going to bring value to, to the client and the company, and the more we're going to be having fun as lawyers, actually. So it's not mm -hmm. as though machines or AI will replace us, but they will make us, I think, more experts into the very difficult and very tough situations, and we'll have more and more of those. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. In-house counsel need to be proactive to get knowledgeable in new legal areas and to further limit or mitigate risks before they arise. For instance, Total has developed under your leadership a very voluntary strategy with respect to global warming, notably through a dedicated task force putting together both litigators and environmental law specialists. What does it mean in practice to develop proactive and innovative strategies for an in-house counsel? And what are the challenges that go with implementing those in a group like Total with almost 100,000 employees in over 130 countries? Well, all of that is really what makes my job so great and so fun, frankly. Uh, stating the obvious, law is everywhere, from you know, our daily lives to our professional lives. And, you know, if, if, if you go back to um, Yuval Harari's book on, on, you know, Homo sapiens, and, and, and there's one thing that, that struck me when I read that was that in his view, how Homo sapiens you know, got to win over the other human species was because Homo sapiens was able to cooperate on a, on a large scale and not only, let's say, on a small scale of five to 10 individuals. And, and that's how uh, some tens, thousands years ago, things started for sapiens and then sapiens uh, dominated the others. And when you think of that in terms of, of the law, it means that the law is very important to build trust and to be able to achieve collective endeavors. And once you have that in mind, you understand that the law is very much relevant to the great or maybe the greatest challenge we face today collectively as a society, as a human society, being really, you know, climate change. In order to address that from a legal perspective, then you need to act with a lot of you know, calm and cold blood, not emotions, as often this topic is being treated. You need to look at that from a soft law perspective. What does climate change and energy needs mean from a soft law perspective? What do we as a company have to develop in terms not of you know compliance, but really soft law, voluntary engagements? What it is that we need to do to make sure that we are part of the solutions that will help tackle climate change. And this has amazing implications from a legal perspective, where actually we get to be architects of you know, something that is going to be part of the company's strategy. And, and, and the lawyers we have, they've been working on our company's voluntary engagements, undertakings, objective setting, ambitions, to make sure that what is being decided from a strategic standpoint has a clear legal consequence internally, again, that's, you know, that's internal law, so to speak, within a company. This also has implications from a more traditional standpoint of regulations and evolving legislations, where there you enter a zone of compliance and how do you anticipate 
the new laws and new regulations that you're going to have and comply with. So this is about governmental affairs. This is about trying to understand how parliament regulators are going to enforce what it is that we need to achieve the, the Paris Agreement goal, for instance. So it's about carbon emissions regulations. It's about technological specifications. Uh, so that's that's all very much relevant. And there's a huge work of anticipation that we need to do. And then trying to make sure that once the new laws and regulations are there, and they are there, we can comply. Mm -hmm. And finally, and all of these you know, legal specialists have to work together, you know, there's always a litigation risk. What does it all mean in terms of liability for stakeholders, companies, energy companies, you know, in the present time and going forward? And, and you need to have litigators working hand in hand with regulatory specialists, HAC specialists, soft law specialists, and, and they're not always lawyers. Some of them are, some of them are not. And, and so we have these teams working together internally to make sure we have a comprehensive view of the legal implications of climate change, meaning what it is that we want to do to address that and, and tackle climate change and what it is that we must do to protect the company in relation to the legal implications of that. Mm -hmm. As part of your attributions at Total, you supervise uh, mergers and acquisitions, joint ventures, and other industrial partnerships. Are intellectual property-related issues impactful and strategic in an economic sector like yours? And also, what about data? Has it become a topic of genuine interest in light of the related business opportunities and, of course, of legal risks? Actually, the um, evolution of IP significance in energy companies, I think, is very interesting to look at. When you look at traditional, some time ago now, oil and gas companies, there was maybe less reliance on IP and you know, technology and licenses to conduct our operations. But this was a long time ago. The, the oil and gas industrial processes have become more and more sophisticated and, more importantly, um, the industry has shifted from a model where companies will be working on their own, on their you know, licenses and, and fields. And now it's only about joint ventures. And there's never going to be any field where a company is going to be on its own. It's always going to be in partnership with others. And and when you bring you know, partners and technology together, it means uh, IP issues, you know, red flags. How do you protect that? And with the evolution of energy, this is becoming more and more true. Energy production energy mix is, is not only about oil and gas, it's about oil, gas, renewables, low carbon electricity, and this is what we do as a company, Total. And and when you look at that, you realize that it's going to be about, and this is already the case today, electricity storage, energy storage, carbon capture and carbon use in the future, uh, with a lot of R&D involved, uh, hydrogen, and all of that is very much scientific intensive. Um, there's a lot of R&D activity going on around that. And, and you need to have a very robust IP protection to protect the value that the company is going to create in addressing the new energy needs and, you know, the new climate needs, frankly, because that's all what it is about too. So IP, even for a traditional energy company, is becoming something that's highly strategic. And when you turn to data, the same is true, obviously. And there are a lot of different, sometimes you know, conflicting uh, legal dimensions to it. And that's the way I see it. Because data is about privacy of data for individuals. And as a large company, especially in the EU with the GDPR, you, you have to pay very careful attention to how you're going to handle and protect the data that you collect from employees, clients, stakeholders. 
It's also about protecting the company data as a whole under business secrecy rules in relation to legislative evolutions in the U.S., such as the Cloud Act, the equivalent of that that you may have in Russia. And you need to, to have a strategy of how the data of the company are going to be protected in this new legal world, where there's a lot of long-arm jurisdiction rules that you know, pop up around the world. And then you need to think of how do you bring in legal to protect the company from hacking, ransomware, and frankly, from my past experience as a litigator, namely, I'm concerned that the world we live in is not really fit for protecting companies in a world where hackers have no borders, they operate from anywhere. And when you look at legal systems, namely enforcement agencies, police investigations, they very much live in an ancient world with borders, Interpol police cooperation, um, international warrants for cooperation. These take years to be achieved when, when hacking ransomware, they just take you know, minutes to take place. Mm -hmm. So this is something we need to address and, and we're not there yet. We haven't found the solutions, I think. Before taking total legal leadership, Aurélien, you were a partner with Allen and Overy, handling complex litigation cases, often mixing criminal and regulatory liability issues. Litigation skills seem like a good way to know firsthand most of the significant risks companies may face, right? Oh, that, that's certain. That's, that's very interesting you're asking me that question uh, as a French lawyer by background and training. I think it makes a lot of sense in, a, in any U.S. company, for instance, to have a litigator become a general counsel. It's not so obvious, or maybe it was not so obvious that it made sense in French companies, and this has changed you know, in the past few years, maybe. And, and the reason is that litigators, regulatory practitioners, um, they have a, a very good feel for actual significant legal risks. And frankly, it's a very good school to learn from what can happen in the worst case scenarios. And this is what you do when you're a litigator, when you do actually, you know, complex regulatory or criminal cases. You get to see pretty much everything in a lot of industries, a lot of legal fields when they go really bad. Bankruptcy, M&A that, that ends up being investigated by the financial market authority watchdogs industrial catastrophes, you get to see the worst part of a, of a lot of things. And, and when you switch and you, you become in-house, you really have a feel for the areas of, of large risks. And when you need to concentrate some of your personal and some of your team's attention um, so that you know the company will be protected from that. And, and from that onwards, you can you know, become more of a, let's say, upstream attorney and, and be, be turning into a good advisor, a good transactional advisor too. And that's a very interesting journey to, let's say, walk, walk backwards the law from litigation and the downstream of the law to the very upstream of the law, which maybe will be soft law, creating the law in the company. You've been teaching legal risk management and compliance in Paris for the last few years. And before that, you were in charge of the criminal law and criminal procedure curriculum at the Paris Bar Professional Training School. As to legal education itself, what is your perspective on the way law is taught at school? In other words, what space shall be left to business and management skills for you? So I think what we really need you know, as lawyers when we get trained in university is first a very sound basic legal knowledge. We need to be taught how to read the law, how to interpret and understand the law, and, and how to ask oneself the right questions. 
no one will ever be an expert, especially not out of law school. So the, the thing is not about being able to find all of the answers off the top of your head, but it's really about understanding what questions you should ask oneself and, and seek answers from others, from books, from whatever sources you want. And, and that's an important point. I don't think students who are interested in law should actually try to be experts in any given field. And, and some of those want to be great experts in, in, in very, very tiny niche fields of practice. I think they should stay away from that and become the great lawyers in general terms. And then what you also need is to integrate other skills in the legal curriculum at university, project management, IT skills. And you need to make sure that we move away from a system where we had great individual lawyers being trained to a system where people will achieve great legal solutions through cooperation and collective thinking. This really is a, a large change in the society we live in. And then as far as French law schools are concerned to this point, I think they need to make more room for English language classes because the new legal and not only legal, but also business lingua franca is English and, and you need, we need to come to terms with it. So with all of that, we should have, you know, great young lawyers out of law school who still have a lot to learn once they start their career. Mm -hmm. Could you name a word that would summarize the last decade and the one you expect for the decade that is just beginning. To me, the last decade was a decade of transition from a more traditional world to something that's new and still fairly unknown. And the next decade, um, I'm going to tell you what, what I fear and what I hope for in one word. What I fear is a split world that's really split 50-50 in democracies, in politics, around very significant issues for our societies. So that's my concern, split. And my hope is unity, obviously, quite the contrary, where we'll be able to you know, reconcile these 50-50 worlds that we have around us. Whose brain would you like to have had and why? I think I would have liked to have Winston Churchill's brain, and I'm not saying that because of Brexit, and I like my English friends. <laughs> um, but frankly, I think Churchill, and the goal maybe was to, to some extent the same, I think he had a brain that knew what not to accept as common sense, and, and knew what to challenge and what to fight, and that's very important. You know, it's freedom of thought and one's um, esprit critique, so to speak. And I think Churchill had very much of that in his brain. What's the best piece of advice you have ever received? My first boss in my first law firm, when I, when I was a trainee, he gave me a very good piece of advice, which was, it takes 10 years to do a good lawyer, to train a good lawyer in practice, a good lawyer being a lawyer that's not dangerous to his client. And it's been a very, very good piece of advice because I've always been very hasty. So I, I will not get ahead of myself. And I, I will always remember that, you know, I was not so safe around my client for at least 10 years when I was uh, in my younger years of private practice. And the last book you read? The last book I read was Educated by Tara Westover. It's a very good book on, on someone who grew up in the U.S., you know, among a family of people who 
believe in conspiracy theories and then end of the world theories and very much recluded from from the outside world and and she decided to move into the world and and go to university and then became an amazing student went to uh, I think it was Oxford and and that's an amazing tale of of how she moved to a world where a lot of the conceptions she had had to be deconstructed uh, in order to fit in the the wider world very interesting what would you have liked to invent or to create I'm not an engineer I work with a lot of engineers so and and they're amazing people really but we lawyers we don't have the same <laughs> the same um, brains I would have loved, I think, to invent the uh, the Concorde, the French um, supersonic passenger aircraft, and and the reason is that it's sad that some 50, 60 years ago we were able to invent amazing technology breakthroughs, and actually these have disappeared, and I think we should try to reinvent that because it's always very sad when progress really declines and when you go back to beforehand. And that's what I felt when the Concorde really disappeared and now we don't have any supersonic passenger aircraft. And it's sad, so I'd like to be able to rebuild that, but I'm not an engineer yet, so I'll, I'll leave that to others. Thank you very much, Aurélien. It's been a pleasure, Audrey. My guest today was Aurélien Amel, General Counsel of the international energy company Total. Thank you for listening to Brand & New. Brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover brand and new. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.